This is the Mike Garrigan Podcast. Welcome to episode 17 of 24 in the Transitions podcast series from MikeGarrigan.com. My name is Mike Garrigan. The following is a listing and rationale for what I consider to be my favorite live albums. A live album is what it sounds like, a recording of a performance, usually in front of a crowd, as opposed to a studio recording, which is completed under more controlled conditions. Although, as I've researched these uh, recordings, I've found that many of the quote-unquote live albums I've grown to love were actually extensively doctored in the studio. And to revise that definition, I think a live record is a recording that at least appears to be (laughs) recorded in front of a live audience. And This list is not meant to be uh, dispositive or even definitive, but uh, I've only heard a fraction of the existing live albums, and these favorites admittedly have a certain nostalgia to them. Uh, You know, I still haven't heard Frampton Comes Alive, but, you know, I've spent weeks listening to obscure jazz recordings. I haven't heard every Pearl Jam live show, but I have a collection of ones that are my favorites, and... A band I don't even know of may have a live album that is objectively better than any of the ones I've listed, but for me, what follows are my ten favorites. Number ten, Thin Lizzy, Live and Dangerous. Live albums from the 1970s excel as examples of how to play a live show. Often they present a band in their native format, one that is preferable to the group's studio recordings. Uh, Growing up under the shadow of uh, an 80s metal environment, I regularly heard of the band Thin Lizzy, but I never actively listened to them, and it wasn't until 1997 when Carlos and I drove up to New York that I heard the Thin Lizzy album Live and Dangerous, and uh, the band's energy on this live album was incredible. And, you know, songs like Southbound uh, surprised me with their intricate harmony guitar work. Uh, Much of the album, though, was familiar. I had heard songs like Dancing in the Moonlight and The Boys Are Back in Town in, in different capacities, but I didn't realize they were Thin Lizzy songs. Produced by Thin Lizzy and uh, Tony Visconti, Uh, Live and Dangerous was released on June 2nd, 1978. Uh, Visconti and the band compiled the live program from several different shows uh, from two different tours. Uh, Most of the show uh, comes from a London performance at the Hammersmith Odeon on November 14th, 1976. Live and Dangerous sold well in England and in the rest of Europe, but Unlike their studio albums, uh, this one didn't really make a substantial dent in the U.S. market. Live and Dangerous highlights a disparity between studio recording and live recording approaches. If you listen to the studio version of Southbound from Bad Reputation, which was Thin Lizzy's 1978 album, the drums and the vocals and the general presentation 
it sounds small and, and tight and, and somewhat choked, but the, the live version is fluid and it's open and it's spatial and, you know, perhaps as a way to kind of entice the U.S. markets, uh, Thin Lizzy's live cover of Bob Seger's Rosalie, uh, which segued into their own Cowgirl song, uh, that served as a single for Live and Dangerous. Um, with any live album, uh, listeners will rightfully question how much of the recording was actually live and how much was doctored in the studio. And sources close to the band disagree on how much is authentically live. Uh, Visconti claims that most of the recording was doctored in the studio, with perhaps only drums and crowd noise being the foundation for the songs and everything else being overdubbed. Thin Lizzy's manager at the time, Chris O'Donnell, claims the opposite, that overdubs were sparse and probably impossible due to how close in proximity everyone played together on stage. The release of Still Dangerous, a complete, uncut version of some of the source shows for the album, reveals a band that sounds nearly identical to the so-called doctored live album. And in my professional opinion, it sounds like perhaps they thickened up the background vocals on Live and Dangerous, but not much else. Thin Lizzy is one of those bands that never received its due. After several lineup changes, both uh, before and after Live and Dangerous, uh, lead singer and bass player uh, Phil Lynott uh, eventually left Thin Lizzy and attempted a few solo projects, but he died in 1986 uh, at the age of 36 from, I guess, a combination of ailments that came on as a result of, of uh, drug use. Um, but perhaps the most relevant member in the later iteration of Thin Lizzy was John Sykes, who would go on to join Whitesnake and eventually form the band Blue Murder, one of my favorites. Um, for a while, uh, Sykes led... Uh, Line at less reunions and tributes to Thin Lizzy, while uh, many formidable musicians have stepped into various roles at these shows. Um, this includes Vivian Campbell on guitar, Tommy Aldridge on drums, and even Aerosmith's Tom Hamilton on bass. Number nine, Cheap Trick at Budokan. When Japan created the Nippon Budokan, they designed the building to be an area that would host the judo competition uh, for the 1964 Olympics. In English, the building's literal translation is Japanese Martial Arts Hall. A controversy arose among the Japanese traditionalists when the Beatles performed at Budokan in 1966. Um, Japan has always been known for its enthusiastic audiences. Uh, although Cheap Trick guitarist Rick Nielsen considered the sound of the Budokan tapes from their 1978 concert to be, uh, quote, hideous, end quote, uh, the, the live set captures a, a raw side of an otherwise polished studio band. Cheap Trick at Budokan ended up being the band's best-selling album, uh, moving three million copies in the U.S. Featuring no production, meaning the entire album was captured live at Budokan and, and mixed later, uh, Tumu Suzuki recorded Cheap Trick uh, at Budokan over two nights. Uh, Jay Messina and Jack Douglas mixed the album later. 
The live sets feature mainly material from the band's first three albums, uh, a Fats Domino cover, Ain't That a Shame, and a song that would be included on Dream Police a year later also appear. The album's legacy was so profound that uh, several versions of it appeared over the years. Uh, Even the original release featured several different iterations of specialty vinyl, including a yellow translucent version. In 1994, uh, Cheap Trick released Budokan 2, which was uh, comprised of an album's worth of songs that were recorded at the original Budokan concert, but they were left off the original release. And in 1998, at Budokan, the complete concert appeared in a two-CD remastered collection of all the songs from the Budokan concert. And for me, this is the way I enjoy hearing the show. Uh, a, a 30th anniversary edition also exists, and this features a DVD of the concert as well as a few bonus tracks. The songs I Want You to Want Me, as well as Surrender, rivaled the studio productions probably because the crowd was so receptive and energetic. The rhythmic chanting after uh, crying on uh, I Want You to Want Me, that's the Japanese crowd singing the vocal delay back at Robin Zander. And if if I could change one thing about Cheap Trick at Budokan, I would have really wanted uh, the recording uh, of the subsequent tour, uh, which featured many of the songs from Dream Police, which is Gosh, that's such a good record, too. Um, otherwise, it's a killer live record. Um, it's Cheap Trick's legacy is, is far and wide, in spite of uh, their best U.S. release only selling three million albums. In the 1980s, the band re-released a few incredible albums, like One on One, produced by Roy Thomas Baker, and Lap of Luxury, produced by Richie Zito. And the band also performed and released a live version of Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band, originally recorded by the Beatles, and that album had been presumably unperformable up until Cheap Trick actually did it. Number 8. Bill Evans' Trio, Waltz for Debbie In the fall of 2005, I walked into a bona fide acoustic jazz club for the first time. It was on 4th Street in Winston-Salem, and unlike the, the rock clubs I was used to, this place was classy. It had cabaret tables and a sort of metropolitan feel, and that night the trio on stage consisted of a piano player, an upright bass player, and a drummer, although the drummers I was used to used to just bash the kit, but this one played with brushes and with finesse. And the the three musicians played as a unit, and they supported each other's improvisations and compelled applause. Uh, After researching jazz trios like the one I had seen that night, uh, I came upon a near-unanimous consensus that the best live trio album of all time is Waltz for Debbie by the Bill Evans Trio, Recorded at a performance at the Village Vanguard in New York on June 25, 1961, this six-song LP captures pianist Bill Evans, bassist Scott LaFaro, and drummer Paul Motian in an inexplicable synchrony. Waltz for Debbie, being the last of four recordings from the trio, 
Uh, this group ends their run on a somber but compelling note. Uh, bassist Scott LaFaro tragically died in a car accident just 10 days after this Vanguard show. Um, but the Riverside label released the album in 1962. Miles Davis was rarely influenced by anyone. Uh, those who played with Miles noted how when Bill Evans joined his sextet in 1958, Evans's soft touch called Miles to play slower. Evans's presence in the sextet presented racial problems for some, as he was a white piano player who took the place of an African-American pianist named Red Garland, um, whose jazz fans who celebrated uh, him in the, in the first great Miles Davis quintet uh, of the mid-50s. And um, we hear Evans's unique touch all over kind of blue, and I wonder if Evans's presence was a necessary component uh, to the kind of blue legacy. On Walls for Debbie, the trio performs Milestones, a modal piece from the 1958 Miles Davis album, Milestones, as, as well as the beginnings of what sounds like the song Flamenco Sketches from Kind of Blue. The balance between Evans, LaFaro, and Motian is perfect, although it's not even. I mean, Evans often sounds like cascading water, and Motian plays a steady and a constant rhythmic backdrop. And LaFaro steps out the most, which is surprising because he's playing an instrument which is usually less prominent. But somehow, uh, LaFaro manages to do this without upstaging Evans. A remaster of Waltz for Debbie contains the original album as well as uh, four outtakes uh, from the performance. Uh, for anyone who wants a relevant introduction to jazz but might not know where to start, Waltz for Debbie is a fine set to begin with. Number seven, Counting Crows, Across a Wire, live in New York City. The Counting Crows had me at Hello with their first album, August and Everything After. Their second album, Recovering the Satellites, uh, struck me just as hard, but it was very different from its predecessor. There's, if there's an illustration of how a different producer can shape the same band completely differently, uh, it's in the stark contrast between these two albums. August conveys a conservative singer-songwriter alt-rock sound in the vein of, well, perhaps R.E.M.'s Automatic for the People or Out of Time. Uh, T-Bone Burnett, the album's producer, delivers a record not unlike others in his catalog. Uh, Gil Norton, who produced The Pixies, Delamitri, and, and Catherine Wheel, delivers a heavier sound with Satellites, and on the tour for Satellites, Counting Crows would mix up some of the heavy songs from Satellites by playing them in a style from August and Everything After. A year later, a two-disc collection of the Counting Crows' performances from VH1's Storytellers and MTV's Live from the Tem Spot appeared, and it was called Across a Wire. The starkness of the lone acoustic guitar and solo vocal rendition of Round Here that opens the Storyteller set illustrates the reason why Counting Crows has done so well over the years. They have the thing that all legacy bands have, good songs. That Round Here works without the Hammond B3 and the 
hook guitar uh, shows how powerful the melody and the lyric are. When Round Here appears on the second disc on Live at the Ten Spot, we hear one of the most powerful versions of the song with all of its accompaniment. By contrast, Angel of the Silences and Have You Seen Me Lately from the acoustic set work surprisingly well as their satellites' counterparts are more heavy rockers. And I prefer the acoustic version of Have You Seen Me Lately to the Gil Norton Guitar Fest that is the album version and the 10-spot version. And, but Angel of the Silences works well in both formats. Vocalist Adam Duritz uh, improvises a lot when he performs. Uh, the first time I heard a live tape of the band, I was surprised how uh, disparate the live melodies and, and even sometimes lyrics were from the studio recordings. I think both Burnett and Norton were able to capture consistent melodies and more concrete performances on, on both of the studio records. On Across a Wire... Uh, Duritz's improvs convey more emotion as a jazz singer would, but without all the scatting. And I've, I've seen the band three times, personally, and each show has been quite different, although each tour tends to reflect uh, the album they are promoting. After Across a Wire, Counting Crows continued to release consistently good studio albums, including This Desert Life, produced by David Lowry, and Hard Candy, produced by Steve Lillywhite. Both of these albums are different from their first two, and, and they, they actually take on the mold of the producer who's at the helm. Uh, Lowry's record has a grit to it that arrives from the presentation rather than the instrumentation, and Lillywhite's album is perhaps their most commercial recording. Number six, Miles Davis, Miles in Tokyo. Anytime an artist is on a search for something, he is in the process of deciding something. And when an important artist like Miles Davis is on the search for something, he is in the process of deciding something important. And the years 1963 and 1964 found Davis hunting high and low for his next great quintet. By 1964, Herbie Hancock played piano for Davis. Ron Carter and Tony Williams completed the rhythm section on bass and drums, respectively. Um, replacing John Coltrane posed a problem as many saxophonists stepped into the new quintet for a while but were summarily dismissed for one reason or another. George Coleman, one of the best uh, saxophonists in all of jazz, and he played for a stint with the Davis Quintet, but he was let go in 1964. On July 14, 1964, Sam Rivers, a fearless saxophonist, would record his only known live date with the Davis Quintet, Miles in Tokyo. Recorded live at Ko Si Ninkin Hall, Shinjuku, Tokyo, Japan. I hope I said that right. Um, Miles in Tokyo shows us one of three early incarnations of the second great quintet, uh, a group that would eventually unravel and spill into uh, Miles' electric period. This would be the final incarnation of what Davis would do with acoustic jazz before leaving music altogether for five years, only to return as 
you know, more of a legacy artist than an innovator. Um, looking back at the track listing for Miles in Tokyo can be deceiving. Uh, the songs are If I Were a Bell, My Funny Valentine, So What, Walkin', and All of You. And this track listing doesn't appear to be much different from the standard fair sets that Miles and company were doing back in the 50s. But on these mid-60s recordings of the the early formation of the second quintet, we hear uh, a group pushing the music to the edge of acoustic jazz while technically staying in the lines but still exposing the limit for what it is. Sam Rivers's performance on Miles in Tokyo is, is wild and unpredictable. In some respects, it, it draws too much attention to itself, but that, for me, is, is why Miles in Tokyo is an exciting record uh, in the first place. Uh, Wayne Shorter, of course, would go on to replace Rivers not long after mid-'64. Uh, and with Shorter, the Davis Quintet found a more conservative saxophonist whose composition skills um, were perhaps greater than Davis's. Um, after Miles in Tokyo, uh, Miles would, re would record Miles in Berlin, which would be the first recording of the second great quintet. In the live arena, the, the Davis Quintet would continue to interpret mostly standards and familiar pieces, but in the studio they would record original compositions mostly. In both settings, they would eventually create a precursor uh, to what is known as free bop, uh, the hard bop style that pays less attention to form and focuses more on the fluidity of group play. Oh, yeah. 
a real treat for me. I like that song a lot. Thanks, guys. Number five, R.E.M., Unplugged, 1991. As a senior in high school, I listened to a cassette dub of an MTV and stereo broadcast of R.E.M., Unplugged. I, I had a padded travel rack of cassettes that I'd bring with me just about everywhere. Um, R.E.M. Unplugged was special because it wasn't technically released uh, as a commercial uh, release, and even on a cassette. uh, But uh, I had something unique, I thought, and R.E.M. Unplugged, uh, it it captured the Athens-based band at at a point where they had a substantial recording agreement with Warner Brothers, but also entered into a, a temporary reclusive non-touring status. And so any shows they did during this period were rare. Recorded on April 10th, 1991 in New York City, R.E.M. Unplugged features a stripped-back R.E.M., one that essentially parallels the reduced recordings we find on Out of Time and later on uh, Automatic for the People. Uh, R.E.M. was, at the time, Bill Berry on drums, Peter Buck on guitar, Mike Mills on bass, and Michael Stipe on vocals. And for this performance, Peter Holzapple from the Winston-Salem, North Carolina-based band The DBs uh, performs additional acoustic guitar and organ. R.E.M. Unplugged allowed fans to hear older, 
more traditionally rock-produced songs from REM in a, a stripped-back format. That's what Unplugged does. But in some cases, like with uh, Disturbance at the Heron House and the song Fall on Me, the arrangements outperform the studio versions. In other cases, like with It's the End of the World as We Know It and maybe Radio Song, the arrangements don't really convey the power of the studio versions, but they still deliver a great deal of fun. Um, Low from Out of Time sounds almost identical to the studio version, and this shows a band that is engaged in their present artistic vision. In this way, the unplugged format it does more than expose good songs behind loud drums and guitars. And here what it does is it showcases and foreshadows the genius that we would experience on their next album, Automatic for the People. For the sake of continuity, a, a second unplugged set accompanies the 1991 set and takes the form of a second disc for the hard copy listeners and a separate partition on the download um, for the downloaders and the streamers. And the second set was recorded in 2001 and 10 years later, and it features some of the same songs. But here the band is in a different place. Bill Berry left the group and we find three additional musicians on stage. Uh, we have Scott McCoy, Ken Stringfellow, and uh, Joey Warnaker. And as with the first set, the second set takes on the character of what R.E.M. was doing in the studio at the time. And uh, this set veers quasi-electronic, a little pitch-corrected, and dare I say a little bit sterile as the as were the studio recordings of that period. And for me, the 1991 set with all of its imperfections and blemishes, uh, it just blows away the later set. Um, R.E.M. went through several incarnations in their tenure, and the last incarnation, in, in some respects, it echoed the, the get-back effort that the Beatles <laughs> found necessary to implement after um, the excessive experimentation um, that had left them with some uncertainty to, to who and, and what they were anymore. But... Uh, the live album Live at the Olympia in Dublin, it, it's also a good live album from R.E.M. And it shows them getting back to their rock roots before recording Accelerate and their final album Collapse into Now. Number four, Nirvana, Unplugged in New York. On my first winter break from college, there were two Nirvana concerts on MTV. Back then, we didn't have TV in the dorms. Uh, we heard rumors of the Unplugged and the Live and Loud shows that Nirvana did, but I didn't actually see them until that December. Uh, live and Loud was a kind of a standard fair live Nirvana album, or show rather, from the In Utero tour. Uh, eventually, Live and Loud would be packaged with the deluxe version of In Utero that came out in 2013. Uh, Unplugged was something different. Uh, that live set featured the band in a stripped-back fashion, as Unplugged uh, almost always is, but here they were surrounded by flowers, and the, the juxtaposition of the sort of carnivalesque acoustic arrangements of their grunge punk songs, along with this backdrop, made 
well, it kind of looked like a, a circus funeral of sorts, and it was weird. And as most people know, uh, Kurt Cobain uh, unfortunately committed suicide in April of 1994. And in that respect, the, the show is kind of creepy and sort of foreshadowed some stuff there. Um, produced by Alex Coletti and Scott Litt, uh, Nirvana, MTV Unplugged in New York, was recorded on November 18th, 1993, at Sony Music Studios in New York City. Uh, the album nearly doubles as a collection of new releases because nearly half of the songs were uh, either cover songs that the band uh, didn't previously record in the studio or they were um, Meat Puppets <laughs> songs. Um, three of the songs were by the Meat Puppets, who uh, incidentally came on the stage to play with Nirvana near the end of the show. That was a bit odd, but it was awesome. Um, uh, the live album would eventually sell over 5 million copies in the United States by 1997. Nirvana's two better-selling albums, Nevermind and In Utero, were no strangers to acoustic moments. Uh, Polly and Something in the Way from Nevermind and Dumb from In Utero, um, those are, were quite at home. On the unplugged set, uh, the acoustic presentations of, of the rock material, as well as the host of covers, hinted at a possible direction for the band. And uh, I think it's likely that Nirvana would have recorded a record with Scott Litt, who produced R.E.M.'s Automatic for the People. And I think their next record would have been kind of like the unplugged set, at least contained some moments like it. Um, that more so than the live and loud set, although, you know, it still would have been Nirvana somehow. Nirvana's albums always featured uh, the best possible vocal from Cobain. On Nevermind, his vocal sounds doubled, and on In Utero, Steve Albini, the recordist, found a way to capture a sort of sustained power in Cobain's voice that really cuts through the noise of that record. On Unplugged and as in most of uh, the Nirvana live recordings, Cobain's voice is, is rough, and it's pitchy, and it's even squeaky at times. And this seemed sloppy over the, the live rock recordings, but somehow it, it seemed fitting with this acoustic presentation. It's sort of like the band was about to fall apart at any second, but it manages to, to make it through to the next song somehow. And then as the next song begins, everything is uncertain again. You know, if, if grunge did have a funeral, I guess this would be it. Uh, no legitimate grunge music was made after Cobain's death. Everything falls into a post-grunge phase at that point. And, you know, what with the rise of the frat rock and the boy bands. Um, after hearing Unplugged, uh, Cobain's death seems all the more tragic. Um, because it offered a glimpse of what could have been... Uh, could have been next for Nirvana, but uh, we're never going to be able to understand what that was and never be able to embrace it and never be able to appreciate it, but at least we can speculate. Number three, Pearl Jam, live at the Fox Theater, Atlanta, Georgia, April 3rd, 1994. On April 3rd, 1994, in the evening, uh, just about everyone I knew, well, at least everyone on my hall at, in Morrison Dorm at UNC, we, we were huddled around 
our college size boom boxes and we we tuned in for what seemed like an anomaly a a live radio broadcast from Pearl Jam from the Fox Theater in Atlanta Georgia and as it was described, it seemed like a well. This is going to be kind of a below the the radar indie broadcast. They would they would probably sound okay, but you know what we got was a crystal clear, energetic, and powerful performance of nearly every Pearl Jam song from the band's first two albums. And Pearl Jam also played three new songs that would eventually appear on Vitalogy, uh, their third album, um, and that came out later that year in December. Uh, whipping and, and better man are improved on on vitality, I think. But uh, the song "Satan's Bed" from the live broadcast, man, that blows away the studio version. Um, it's so good. Uh, this live record was produced by Brendan O'Brien and Pearl Jam, and uh, it was a live broadcast that it went out to the world, and it's identical to the commercial recording, with the exception of uh, redacting the. Vitalogy songs, and also the cover of Sonic Reducer, uh, originally recorded by the Dead Boys, is also omitted. Um, while various bootlegs and digital dupes of the radio broadcasts uh, are plentiful, the proper authorized version of the show exists as a import maxi single. And in, in 1990s terminology, that means uh, there, there were three separate CDs uh, with about seven or eight songs each. Um, for the streaming public, that literally makes no sense, but that's how things were back then. Um, Pearl Jam's 10 came out in 1991, and it was recorded in early 1991, uh, four months before grunge broke. And at the time of the album's mixing, it, it made sense for the tracks to fit into the alternative sound that was prevalent, meaning there was pervasive reverb and, and washiness that it wasn't unwelcome. But when grunge broke, grit weighed more than air. The recordings got dirtier, more in your face, and, and more urgent. And, and that's the result of Versus, the second Pearl Jam album. But And, and there, uh, Pearl Jam worked with producer Brendan O'Brien to, to craft a, a much grungier album while still being the Pearl Jam that made 10. The power of Live in Atlanta, uh, the live record that I, I love so much, is that it places these washy 10 songs next to the gritty verses songs, and, and they become presented on an equal footing. The result is what I think is the best concert the band has ever recorded. And if you know Pearl Jam, you know that they release just about every concert they play. But for me, this is the one. I'm almost certain that King's X opened the Fox Theater show. Uh, Doug Pinnock from uh, King's X sings a verse of WMA, which adds to the song's force. And, and Pinnock, of course, is an African-American man, and the song is about police brutality towards minorities. Um, this set features uh, Dave Aberzezzi, I think that's how you pronounce his name, on drums, who, in my estimation, was the best of Pearl Jam's four drummers. And Matt Cameron, the current drummer, is quite capable, but I, for some reason, I can't get past the fact that when Matt Cameron is on drums in Pearl Jam, I'm, I feel like I'm listening to Temple of the Dog without Chris Cornell. And 
the last several releases with Cameron have been stellar, don't get me wrong. Um, but Aberzezzi was, he had this top and this touch to his drumming, and, and one that I think better complemented Jeff Ament's bass tones. And I missed that once uh, Aberzezzi left the group. Pearl Jam is an interesting group to contextualize historically. They are among many multi-platinum bands whose first albums sold over 10 million copies, only to be followed by successively less sales with each subsequent album. When they started releasing their shows to their fan club, the Pearl Jam experience became rooted more in what they did live than in what they recorded. Case in point, look to just about any Pearl Jam set in the past 10 years and see that it is comprised of at least half songs from the first two albums or B-sides from the first two albums. I think this shows a deference to the fan who may be going to a Pearl Jam show because maybe she was one of the 10 million plus fans who bought 10 and at the show she hears mostly songs that she knows. But then she hears a song like Mind Your Manners or Thumbing My Way and thinks, hmm, I like that song. I'm going to listen to Pearl Jam more often. Number two, Kiss, Alive. The evening after Collapsus played the Bell Share Festival in Asheville, North Carolina, I, I think it was the Bell Share Festival, um, we ended up at someone in the crew's relative's house. It was weird. Like, I don't know how, I, I don't know what happened. But anyway, uh, it was August of 2000, and I think I was pretty road burnt at that moment. I, I remember laying down on a couch in this largish house that had several empty rooms, to, despite the entire band and crew being uh, somewhere in the house. Um, I retrieved my disc man from my briefcase, and I put in disc one of Kiss Alive, and I pressed play, and I closed my eyes. There I imagined the entire concert being played in front of me, and we had been watching the black and white footage from Winterland 74, uh, which some fans argue is a better show than the Kiss Alive set, but I loved hearing the best of what Kiss released on their first three albums in this much more powerful live context. Produced by Eddie Kramer and recorded from several different concerts on the Dress to Kill tour, Kiss Alive debuted in September of 1975, incidentally just a week after I was born. Uh, the album shattered expectations by becoming certified gold, outselling all of Kiss's uh, studio albums. Uh, the issue with Kiss was that they were a fun, excellent live band whose theatrics didn't translate to their early studio recordings. The band wore makeup and elaborate costuming, which, beyond the album cover, doesn't really become part of the album master, that is, unless the album is recorded live. Like the live and dangerous dispute with Thin Lizzy, Kiss Alive raised all kinds of questions over how much was actually live and how much was doctored in the studio, and Gene Simmons claims that very little was overdubbed. Uh, producer Eddie Kramer recalls that only the drums were retained and the rest were re-recorded. And 
I wonder if the truth is somewhere in the middle. As you know, there are still a few blemishes on the bass and the guitars that probably would have been caught during overdubs, and unless they were very short on time, which is which is a possibility. But looking at the Cobo Hall concert that the band released in their video anthology, the, the live video and audio seems of a lesser quality, both in sound and execution. Unlike Thin Lizzy's live album, I think more was overdubbed on Kiss Alive than not overdubbed. But does that really matter? I mean, a recording isn't a natural uh, way to experience music anyway. And in this concert, it, it presents Kiss in a proper context. When I listen to the Hotter Than Hell version of Parasite, for example, I'm kind of taken out of the moment by the quality of the recording. Uh, the live version is clear, it's powerful, and it's dynamic. And with all the doctoring that goes on in the studio today with quantizing and auto-tune, uh, Kiss Alive is probably more live than most studio albums today, even if it's only the drum performances that are true. Kiss would go on to release Alive 2 uh, a few years after Alive, and this sequel featured live versions of the band's next three albums, uh, Destroyer, Rock and Roll Over, and Love Gun. The issue with Alive 2 is that the studio recordings of those songs excelled uh, when compared to the live counterparts. It's sort of the opposite problem from Alive. And while the standout tracks were produced well in the studio, uh, those three albums had more filler than the previous three, and as a result, the live program was a bit shorter the band threw on some new studio recordings, which they weren't great. And Alive, uh, Alive 3, which came out in the 90s, it was an overall improvement of that Alive 2 concept. And, and that live record features the best of the 80s makeup less Kiss albums. But in terms of live Kiss, Alive, the first one, is, uh, is stellar. Number one, Ozzy Osbourne and Randy Rhodes. Tribute. In 1987, when Ozzy Osbourne released uh, concert recordings that were assumed to be non-existent, uh, the album surprised and mesmerized guitar enthusiasts like myself. Uh, here we heard Ozzy with his prized sideman, Randy Rhodes, in one of Rhodes's last live shows, and he's playing blistering live renditions of the studio cuts that were already light years beyond uh, other bands in the metal genre, uh, with the exception of perhaps Van Halen. But uh, the studio captured uh, Randy's technique very well, but it didn't capture his context. And the live show uh, featuring Tommy Aldridge on drums and Rudy Sarzo on bass is easily the best live metal album and also my favorite live recording overall. What's interesting about the timing of Tribute's release is that it came soon after uh, the end of the Ultimate Sin tour, but before announcing Zach Wilde as the successor to Jakey Lee, uh, who is Ozzy's principal guitarist after Randy's death in 1982. Um, being a 12-year-old who was avidly learning about Randy Rhodes, uh, this tribute album raised some questions. Uh, first, why was this album coming out now? Uh, what about Jake? What happened to Jake? And uh, 
were there other live recordings from this period? And uh, none of these questions have really ever been answered, but um, <laughs> the album ultimately sold over two million copies in the U.S. and doubled the sales of Ultimate Sin. The first thing I noticed about Tribute when compared to the studio versions of the songs is uh, space, openness, and uh, the full tone of the band. Ozzy sounds great as always, and, and he probably doubled his voice in the studio in, in post-production, but you know, since Randy had passed on, there, there really wasn't a way to um, doctor his tracks, and his tone fills in the arena very well. And, and the studio versions they, of these songs, they sound a bit dry in comparison. I wouldn't say that Tommy Aldridge and Rudy Sarzo were necessarily better players than Bob Daisley or Lee Kerslake, the, the studio band. Uh, in fact, on two of the tracks, I believe Daisley and Kerslake are still in the live band and are therefore on the live album. And this was, of course, culled from several different tour dates. There's one qualm I have about tribute is that I would have liked to have heard Over the Mountain and Diary of a Madman instead of uh, No Bone Movies and a lot of the Sabbath stuff that was kind of rehashed. And those two songs, Over the Mountain and Diary of a Madman, uh, those are studio masterpieces that they may have been difficult to pull off live. But still, if anyone could do it, it would have been Randy. There's a live video uh, on YouTube from the Jakey Lee era of, of Jake kind of struggling a little bit with the leads to Over the Mountain. And I wonder if the song was just truly difficult to play. Um, you know, I would never compare myself to the greatness of these guitar players, but man, that song is tough. <laughs> um, Diary of a Madman, on the other hand, it, that may have relied on the acoustic guitars as well as the sort of uh, Carmina Burana-esque choir that Ozzy um, used for singing uh, on the track. Uh, maybe that song was meant to be just a studio creation. Ozzy would go on to release a few other live albums, including Live and Loud uh, and Live at Budokan, of all things. Uh, both would feature Zach Wilde. And these shows are decent, but nothing like the fire of Tribute. I mean, as I look back on it, Tribute was one of the the few albums that, you know, I had on original vinyl, I had it on original cassette, I had it on remastered CD, and if I could, I would download it uh, to streaming just to have it in my Apple Cloud, but I'm not doing that because, you know, I have the CD. But anyway, um, for me, this record is kind of like the, the White Album. It's, it's a record I'll always want to have in whatever format is king, as long as we have formats. The Mike Garrigan Podcast is brought to you by MikeGarrigan.com.